you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're going to be in verses 3 through 19. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 19. We'll get to that in just a moment. Today we are looking at the end of our, our journey in 1 Samuel. We're going to be getting to the end of 1 Samuel, and we're going to see the end of uh, King Saul's story. And, and when you look at the books, 1 and 2 Samuel, which originally were most likely one book about all of this story, often the person we think of first, in my opinion, is David. That's who I often think of. When I think of the stories we find in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we think of King David. Uh, and, and that's very much true. But in 1 Samuel, we also see the entire story of King Saul. And, and today we're getting to the end of his story. And in particular, we're seeing Saul at really his lowest point when everything in his life seems to be going wrong. And again, I find it magnificent to see how, how God works as we're looking at the lesson this morning and seeing how it's talking about when you're in wandering in the desert and crying out to a good God that is there. And we're going to be looking at a lot of those things today, but we're looking at the end of the story of Saul and we're seeing what we can learn from it. Because oftentimes when we look at Scripture, we see good examples of people that we should look to and want to emulate their behavior, people we want to act like, people that are godly. But we also see examples of people who do almost everything wrong. And that's what we've seen time and time again in King Saul's life, and we see how he finishes poorly as well. So let's go ahead and start reading in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3. Through 19. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to, to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, but Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? 
The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give you, will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this time that we can come together and we can look at your word. And God, I pray that today as we look at this ending of the story of Saul, as we've looked through it, as we've seen all the things he's done and all of the mistakes that he's made and we see what he does here, Lord, I pray that you will help us to see what we can learn from that. How we can learn to make better choices in our life. How we can learn to follow you more faithfully. God, I pray that you will be with us this morning, that you will help to guide us and show us what we ought to do. I pray that you will help convict us of of what you call us to do and how you call us to live, and that we would leave here as people more ready to follow you faithfully in in this world, and that we would be people who are sharing your word with those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this, we have to see what's happening here. So things are going wrong. In Saul's life, okay? Uh, a little bit between last week and this week. Last week we saw how David spared Saul's life. And do you know what Saul did with that wonderful opportunity? Continued seeking to kill David. And David, again, spares Saul's life. And we find Saul in this place where he has alienated David, who he had made his own enemy by his own actions. We see how the Philistines are coming against him. God's not answering him. And so what does he do? He turns to a medium. All right, so what this means, it's what you think of it today, right? If you go on TV and you scroll through, there's plenty of shows about mediums or psychics or all of these types of things that exist in the world today. And so that's what he's going to, is a person that claims to be able to speak with the dead. Now, note in this passage how Saul had previously driven the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why? Because they were an abomination before the Lord. That was not something that God wanted his people dealing with. Right? So the first thing we see from, from Saul is that we, when things go wrong, we must remember the enemy. We must remember the ultimate enemy that we are struggling with. Think about 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. When we are facing things in this world, when we are serving God, when we are walking in, in our walk with God, the ultimate enemy that we face is not the people around us. It's not the people that we have problems with. The ultimate enemy is Satan and those who are following him and his legions, the demons and, and those who follow him. Again, think about Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in a few, earlier in Ephesians, we see how this is the same spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. So when I'm saying this, what, what am I getting to is, is that we remember the real enemy. We remember that Satan 
is real. We remember that demons are real and are in His service, and they are seeking to come against us, seeking to do anything they can to keep us from serving God and keeping people from coming to the knowledge of the truth if they're able to. This is the true enemy. And the reason this is important is because in His time of greatest need, when God didn't answer Him, He went to one who is dealing with demonic spirits. In his time of greatest need, instead of running to God with with pure motives and pure intentions, he turns from God to chase after the actual enemy. He has made David, who is actually serving God, to be his enemy. And by his own actions, he has made God an an enemy of himself and turns to the actual enemy for help. He goes to the ones who are serving and, and dealing with demonic spirits. So what does it mean to remember the enemy? It doesn't mean that we need to over-spiritualize everything. It doesn't mean that everything that bad that happens in your life is a result of demonic oppression or a result of Satan coming against you directly. Especially when you are the one that's caused your situation. That's, that's oftentimes what, what we'll hear. is like, well, Satan's just really out to get me. I don't know if Satan's out to get you because you can't pay your bills, but you spent all your money on something that, that was wasting your money. Making poor choices doesn't mean that Satan's out to get you. But we don't, we don't ignore the reality of spiritual warfare. Right? So there's a, there's a balance here. We remember the true enemy, but we don't over-spiritualize everything in our lives. Not everything is an attack from Satan. But we don't ignore that Satan is seeking to come against us. And so in that, we should not affiliate ourselves with those things. That is why Saul had previously removed the mediums and necromancers from the land, is because that were not, those were not things that God's people should be involved with. There are a lot of things in this world that present themselves as harmless, but really are not things that Christians should be dealing with. And, and mediums and necromancers and things like that would fall into those categories. You can go into many places and buy things like Ouija boards and all of these types of things, We shouldn't be dealing with them even if we just think it's a game. We remember the true enemy in these situations. But more than that, and as we go on, we remember when things go wrong that our character is tested. When things go wrong, our character is tested. Verse 6 tells us in this situation that Saul inquired of the Lord. This time he didn't hear anything from the Lord. He, he got no response. If we remember back through Saul's story, his big problem throughout it is that he did not make seeking God a priority. At first glance, it could appear that Saul did the right thing. Why didn't God answer? I want you to think about exactly what you're dealing with here. Saul is a person that when, when he was waiting for Samuel to come, when he was facing the Philistines, he acknowledged, I, didn't, I had not sought the Lord, and so I made the sacrifice myself. That was the first thing he did wrong. And then when he carries out the wrath against Amalek, as it talks about in this passage, he doesn't obey the Lord. Saul consistently was affiliated in a way with God, but on his terms. And so now as he's coming to God to deal with him, what are his motives? What are his motives? His motives are selfish. He's looking for his own deliverance. How do we know they're selfish? Because when God doesn't answer, 
what does he do? He goes to the very opposite end. Well, if God's not going to answer me, I'm going to go to the medium at Endor. I'm going to go ask her for help. Even though God's already commanded that we remove them from the land, I'm going to go to the ones that God has commanded us not to associate with. So we know his motives are not true and not pure. He was seeking God because all hope was lost. I think probably the most equivalent thing we could think of, he's, he's praying to God because he's seeing the Philistines come against him. He's, he's lost. There's no hope, it seems like, for him in this situation. And so this situation, Saul, who's already been rejected time and time again, has disobeyed God, is, is seeking to kill the one that God has said will take his place. What does he do? He cries out to God at this point with selfish motives. This would be like a murderer praying to God to help the, go- the cops not find him. That's what I want you to understand. In this situation, when, when Saul is asking God to help stop the Philistines, the Philistines are his judgment. God's judgments against Saul is carried out by the Philistines. And so when Saul is asking God to please stop this from happening, he's, it's like a murderer praying to God to help the cops not find him. Now, now what do we know certainly? God can, can save all people. Right? A murderer is not too far gone to be saved by God, but that does not mean that God is going to remove the consequences of his actions in this life. The murderer crying out for salvation will be saved. The murderer crying out for, for, for no punishment won't be heard. And that is what Saul is doing in the situation. He was not seeking God in repentance, but from his deliverance from a worldly threat. When things were not going his way, Saul's character was put to the test. When everything was going wrong, when he knew what he should have been doing, he did the exact opposite thing. So there's going to be many situations in this life where our character is going to be put to the test. Things are going to go wrong. And, and if you've lived long enough, there's probably been places in your life where you've felt in a similar situation as Saul is in. Now, maybe you're not living the same life as Saul. Maybe you are living in obedience, but everything seems to be going wrong. Your life seems to be falling apart. Everything seems to be going wrong. And it's in these moments that our character will be tested. What will you do? When it seems as though God's not answering you, when it seems as though everything is lost, are you going to continue to follow God? Are you going to continue to seek Him in the way that you should? Or are you going to turn to other solutions, even ungodly solutions? As Christians, we cannot be only concerned with being successful in this life, but we must be concerned with being successful in the right way. Right? So that means if, if you're struggling in life, right? we know this, that if you're hungry, the right answer is not to go and steal food. That's not what God wants you to do. God has, he, it's not about just having the right results, about doing it in the right way. We, that's where our character is tested. When difficult things happen, when things go wrong, our character will be tested. So how do we overcome these trials in our life? How do we overcome it when, when everything seems to be coming against us? Well, the first two things. The first thing is we must trust in God. And that's something we see that Saul did not do. He did not trust in God. He went to God, 
but he wasn't trusting in him. Because when he didn't get the answer he wanted immediately, he went elsewhere. Right? And you've probably seen and you've probably heard of, of times where people that don't even claim to believe in God, at their lowest, they'll ask him for help. But we have to trust in God. Know that God has, does, and will deliver his children from trials. Right? Think at this point in Israel's history, all of the ways that God has shown his love and compassion and his steadfast love for his people, delivering them from seemingly impossible circumstances. He's delivered them. We have to trust that God can and does still deliver His people. And we remember the Holy Spirit that God has given us to help us. Jesus said that when He leaves, the Helper would come. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Helper, the Holy Spirit that lives inside believers and helps us to know the way we ought to go. And if we will listen to the Holy Spirit's influence in our life, we will be able to follow Him in obedience. So we must trust in God, believe that God can and will do what He says, that He is on our side if we are truly following Him in faith. But it's not that we simply trust in God and and do nothing else, because God's trusting in Him in that He has commanded us to be prepared. Part of trusting in God is being prepared in the way He calls us to be prepared. One popular quote that you may have heard before by Will Durant is, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. And so in the same way, when your character is tested, godliness is not an act. It is a habit. If you want to have godly reactions when your character is tested, if you want to have godly reactions when you're placed in a place of no hope, the best way for that to happen is to repeatedly live a godly life, to seek after Him, to to always be seeking after God. And it, it is natural when it happens. As a, when I was a junior in high school, we had a really good baseball team. But do you know what we did every single day? Every single day we took ground balls. Every single day we did all of the small things. We still went through every part of our swing. We still warmed up. Why do you do those things? So that when it comes time to play the game, you're able to respond. We didn't practice the big plays. You practice the small things. You practice being ready. So when it comes to our faith, we need to be prepared. If we want to be able to stand up and and do the things that God would call us to do in the big moments, in the face of great great and difficult circumstances, we must prepare in our everyday life. So how does this look like? What does this look like for us to be prepared? We look at the armor of God. So we talked about how we don't deal, right, in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If this is our enemy, if this, this otherworldly enemy is what we face, the solution to that is given as the armor of God. Ephesians 6.13-20. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. I want to stop right there. And having done all to stand firm. What does that mean? Be prepared. It means that when difficult things are coming, and you know they're coming, God's Word tells us difficulty is coming. There is an evil day. It is coming. How will you be prepared? Having done all, done all that you can to be ready, take on the full 
armor of God. Stand, there, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as, for your, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flames, flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words, the, and that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Because we have a difficult enemy, because there will be difficulty that we will face in this life, we take up the armor of God. And we see in Saul's life how he had this at one point figured out. How he knew at one point. The very first thing he does is deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. Why? Because he trusted in God and knew that God would be there to fight the battle. He did the right thing to begin with. What does he do now? Now he has given up hope, does not trust in God, and turns to other things. And so if we want to follow an example from this, we do the opposite. We trust in God even if we don't feel like we hear them at first, and we prepare. Right? When you look at the forecast, if you see rain coming and you don't take an umbrella, that's on you. When we see a clear and present constant threat of evil that will come into our lives and we don't take up the full armor of God, that's on us. We're not preparing for what, for what is coming. Oftentimes, the things we battle with are our own sinfulness. The way that there will be temptation in the world around us. It's not always a Philistine army coming to, to, to come against you or people coming against you in your life, making things difficult for you, though that does happen. Oftentimes, the things that Christians struggle with, the evil oppression they face is the own, their own temptations they deal with regularly. So how do you conquer those things? A wonderful quote from John Piper on this. Is I hear so many, he says, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings. And I see so little war. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war. This is the idea that we should declare war against our sin. It's not something we do lightly. When we see this enemy, if we, and we look at it, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of it. It's as though we are facing a war of, of the sin in our lives. And we trust that God has saved us and forgiven us. But if we want to be freed from that, we should stand in opposition to our sin. Make war against our sin. Not simply do what Saul did and be like, here it is and I'm overcome. I'm, I'm in despair because of this sinfulness that I can't seem to conquer. God has defeated sin and He has given us the tools that we need to follow Him in righteousness. And the armor of God seems to indicate that we need to be ready for war. Constantly to fight a war against the sin in our lives and to, to be in obedience to Him. Because if we want to be faithful in difficult situations, we need to be faithful in the little things. You think about the parable of the talents, how they were given each so many talents, and the one that had one buried it did nothing with it. He wasn't faithful in little, and so he was not given anything else to be faithful with. If we want to be ready when the time comes, we must be faithful in our daily lives. 
And the last thing we see is that when things go wrong, our actions reveal our heart. When things go wrong, our actions reveal our heart. Saul's decision to go to the medium revealed the condition of his heart. Now, I want to be clear here, because if you read this story, if you read this passage by itself, it's like, well, what did he do? I mean, he made a one-time lapse in judgment, right? We've all made mistakes, right? We've all done the wrong thing before, where we had an option before us, and we messed up, and we failed. But this is not what happened in Saul's life. This is a continual pattern of rebellion against God, doing the thing he should not have done. Saul proved himself in this situation who God had already judged him to be. God judged him and said he was taking the kingdom from Saul because of his rebellion against him. This is where God sees things that we don't see. Because God, Saul's pattern after that point in time revealed his real rebellion and disobedience to God. The reality of the situation is that where Saul needed to do was repent and be reconciled to David and actually seek the Lord. It was very clear what he needed to do. Have you ever talked to someone like that that needs advice in your life? Someone comes to you like, I just don't know what to do. All of these things are happening. Everything seems to be going wrong. And you're like, the answer is really clear. Right? The answer is so clear. Here's what you need to do. In Saul's situation, it was very clear what he needed to do. He needed to repent and seek the Lord. Not for selfish purposes. Not for his own absolvement. Of, of, of punishment, but absolvement of guilt. He needed to seek him and repent. And part of that is he needed to quit going after David and trying to kill him. He was given ample opportunity to repent. Instead, Saul continued to go his own way, ignoring the Lord's commands in the process. Now, I wanted to be clear, this was not an utter rejection. He was always God-adjacent. I want you to think in your life, and maybe it's been you at times, or maybe you see it in people in your life, being God-adjacent is not a good thing. You see, in word, he was affiliated with God. But indeed, he had nothing to do with him. He would be obedience-adjacent in things, but he wasn't really being obedient. It's like if you had a child and you said, hey, you need to go clean your room, and their way of Doing that, their way of obedience is just shoving everything under the bed and stuffing it in the closet. They want to appear as though they've done what they were supposed to do, but everything really didn't get cleaned. They were obedience adjacent. This is what Saul has done throughout his whole time as king. And you can imagine the outcome of this story being different had Saul been obedient and truly repented. Can you imagine a situation where Saul repents before the Lord, where he is reconciled with David? The Lord forgives him potentially and allows him to remain king and serve out his days and David comes to the throne after. We see Jonathan didn't really have a lot of ambition to be the king. You can, you can imagine a scenario where that plays out in your mind. But that's not what happens. When it came to this final situation of desperation, he seeks out his old mentor through ungodly means. He turns to, the, to evil sources. He goes to the medium rather than seeking God. And in this situation, he doesn't like the news that he hears. Saul's response in this situation is utter despair. This is where we see the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And this is spelled out in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-11. through 11. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you, 
felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness, earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So when faced with despair and difficulty, especially of our own doing, we should be catapulted toward God. It should cause us to seek God because He's the only one who can deliver us from ourselves and our own sinfulness and our own mistakes and our own problems that we have created rather than turning further, further toward the world. When Saul was in despair, he was in worldly despair. He had no hope. He had nothing. And it leads to death. But the reality is that as sinful people, when we are confronted with a holy God, where there will be despair. When we realize our sinfulness, when we realize what we have done wrong, when we realize the ways that we have sinned against God, when we realize that the circumstances we find ourselves in are often because of ourselves, there should be despair. We should have this sinking feeling within us. But if it's godly grief, other, a lot of times we call that conviction, it produces repentance and we turn toward God and we are reconciled to Him because He is gracious and merciful. We see that when people seek God for forgiveness, He is gracious and merciful. And just like Saul, our actions in our lives reveal our hearts as well. Saving faith will produce righteousness in our lives. Saving faith will produce righteousness in our lives. The Bible is clear that we can know we are saved. This salvation is not something that can be taken from us. 1 John 5.13, after talking about all these things about love and all of these ways of dealing with people, here's how John closes the the letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can be confident of your salvation. You can be confident that you are saved. But the Bible is also clear that not everyone who professes the name of Christ actually follows Christ. And there's a lot of people that, like Saul, were, are God-adjacent. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, why did we, not, did, we, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the very beginning of that chapter, talks about those who believe in vain. It talks about how he's a, a minister of the gospel through which you are being saved unless you believed in vain. This is talking about the same shallow faith that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower. Those who believed for a time but were choked at, or it, it, there was no root, and so it withered and died. So what does this mean? There are people in this world who are God-adjacent. They may attend church. They may say that they're a Christian. But it's an intellectual knowledge. It's exactly what Saul does in his life. They don't know the Lord. They don't have a deep 
abiding relationship with him. They don't have a saving faith in him. They may believe there is a God. They may intellectually assent to some things. But they have not placed their faith in Christ. They may profess him, but they don't truly know him. So can we know if we are saved? Absolutely. How? Do we do the will of the Father? Right? This is what Jesus said, Not all who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's not saying that you're saved by doing the will of the Father. But what is the will of the Father? First, that you believe in Christ. That is the will of the Father for salvation, is that you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. You ask Him to save you. You realize your sin. You have a a godly grief that produces repentance, and you trust in Christ for your salvation, and, and you trust in Christ alone. And if you have done that, if you have a saving faith, it will result in walking in obedience. It will result in walking in obedience. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. But it does mean that you're not going to look like Saul. Where every time you have a chance to follow God, every time you have a chance to do what God would call you to do, you do the opposite. If we know Christ, it will result in walking in obedience. It will result in becoming more like Christ. Your actions reveal your heart. So I want to ask you, are you walking after God's will in your life or your own? Today, where are you? I think there's only a couple places you can be. You can be saved. You can have a, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ where you know that you've believed you and you see the evidence in your life. You see the obedience in your life. You see how you used to walk one way and now you walk another. You see how when you're tested, your character comes through. You see how the armor of God has protected you, how the Holy Spirit has guided you. If that is the case, do so even more. As you go through your life, follow God more faithfully. Look for more ways to be obedient. Look for ways to share the gospel, to proclaim God's goodness to others. Or maybe today you are saved. You have a saving relationship with Christ, but you're struggling. Because being saved doesn't mean being perfect. It means being obedient. Maybe right now you're in a place where being obedient is particularly difficult for you. Where it seems like everything's coming against you. Everything's... Now is the time to turn to the Lord, not to turn to other things. And the uncomfortable one that we have to always examine ourselves for is, you could be here and you might say that you believe. You might have been in a church for a long time, but it hasn't meant anything to you. The faith that you have is just nothing more than words. An intellectual assent saying, saying, feel like you're saying the right thing. And how do you know if nothing in your life indicates that you've been saved? Nothing in your, in your life indicates that you're following Christ. If that's you, seek Him today. And that's one of the things that has been beneficial about the way that the world has changed. Because for a long period of time, a lot of people would say they were Christian, even if they never went to church, had nothing to do with Christ. It was a cultural thing. And as the culture has shifted, what becomes more clear? People don't have to say they're a Christian to to be in social circles anymore. The good thing is it makes 
the mission field more clear. If someone said they were a Christian and they really weren't, but now they don't do that anymore, it makes it easier to know if someone is truly saved because they're not having to do that. But you can be in church. You can have lived your life in church and you can have truly never known Christ. It's hard to think that way, but if if you look at your life, there's no indication that you know Him. If you know in your heart that you've never truly trusted Christ for your salvation, today you need to seek Him. Or maybe you're here today and you know that you've never believed. You know that about yourself. You know that you're separated from God. What I hope would happen for you today is that you would be confronted with your own sinfulness. Not because I want you to feel bad, but because I want you to realize the salvation that's available through Christ alone. That if you will trust in Him, that if you will let that grief, that conviction, turn you toward Him to repent and believe, you will be saved. Today is the day to be saved. So wherever you are this morning, whether you know Him and you need to continue to follow Him faithfully, or whether you know Him and you're just struggling, or if you don't know Him this morning, today is the day to follow the Lord in whatever way that means for you. In a few moments, Becky's going to come and we're going to have a time of invitation. And I want to invite you to follow the Lord. The altar will be open if you need to pray. I will be down front for prayer as well. How do you need to follow the Lord today? Don't be like Saul. Don't be like one who, who says they know him but does everything the wrong way. Seek him in obedience this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an example of how we should not live in our lives, an example of how we should not reject you, an example of what we should avoid doing in our lives. And God, I pray that as we seek after you this morning, as we seek to to follow you in obedience, that you would convict us of what obedience looks like in each of our lives. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we're at. You know where we're struggling. God, I pray that you would convict each of us and you would call us to follow you faithfully and show us how to do that. God, I pray that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.